Hello and welcome to HIV Matters Podcast. My name is Michelle Croston and as your host I will be facilitating interesting conversations with leading experts in the field of HIV care. The conversations will be centred around exploring ways to improve quality of life for people living with HIV. Throughout my career I've always had a keen interest in any initiatives to improve outcomes for people living with HIV which has led me to work with a variety of different organisations, with different healthcare professionals and activists. Here at HIV Matters, we hope to use our unique perspectives and platforms to improve knowledge and understanding with regards to HIV. In order to do this, we will engage in conversations with people living with HIV, people who have worked in the HIV sector, and sometimes a mixture of both. We hope you enjoy the episode and if you have any ideas or questions on this or future episodes, please contact us at hello at hivmatters.co.uk. You can also follow us on Instagram at hivmatterspodcast or visit our website at www.hivmatterspodcast.co.uk. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and comment on our show. Today I'm being joined on the HIV Matters podcast by Joe Josh. I'm delighted to be able to introduce our podcast guest to you today. Joe Josh is an experienced communication professional who moved from mainstream brands to focus on media training, strategic communications and crisis management for leading global businesses and in more recent times she's moved to the healthcare sector. Jo has recently had broadcasting experience for the, both the BBC and Independent outputs. She's been a freelance contributor to national press magazines and specialist industry titles. I'll be delighted to pick Joe's brains about how we can improve our content for HIV matters. As communication officer for the British HIV Association, Joe handles media inquiries and advocacy within the health system and government. Jo is also a woman living with HIV and volunteers on a number of different boards and steering committees, such as UK CAB, which is a network for over 700 HIV treatment advocates for more than 100 organisations. Jo was also the co-chair of the Sophia Forum, a national UK charity which promotes and advocates for the rights, health and welfare and dignity of women living with HIV through research and raising awareness and influencing policy. Jo's kindly agreed to share her experiences in empowering women living with HIV in our podcast in HIV Matters. Jo is also a keen contributor to the Joint Terence Higgins Trust Sophia Forum Research. I've dropped a link to this piece of research in the show description, which looks at HIV and women invisible no longer. Jo has amazing videos on the National AIDS Trust, where she talks about with Tristan Barber, where she talks about aging, living with HIV. Again, I will drop that information in the show descriptions. Now, mindful, I've probably skipped over some other parts of Joe's biography because I just can't wait to start interviewing our guest and bringing in all that great knowledge and wisdom that she's kindly agreed to share with our listeners today. So, without further ado, I'm going to now introduce you to our podcast guest, Joe Josh. 
So thank you so much for agreeing to be part of the podcast today, Joe. I'm delighted that you've agreed to share your time and experience with us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for asking me. You've agreed to come onto the podcast to talk about something that's really important and very close to my heart, which is about empowering women in the consultation and also beyond that as well within the um, clinical consultation. So Joe, recently you prepared a great talk for the HIV Nurses Association conference about empowering women in the consultation room. I'm just wondering for our audience, are you able to share some of the key take-homes or a brief overview of the points from within that talk? I'm mindful that was a huge piece of work for you, but I'm just wondering if there's any kind of um, highlights that you could share for our listeners. I think you've probably already realized that I'm fairly passionate about this because communication is essential to help anybody, male or female, with handling their HIV. In other words, managing their HIV in terms of not just how they take their medication or even if they take their medication, but how they live their life how they relate to other people, how they handle the negative reactions that they almost definitely will get from others because they're HIV positive. And I think that HIV specialist nurses are crucial, in fact, central to that process, to empowering women because you are the channel between the doctors, pharmacists, and the patients, because you're there with patients. And as you must know, as everyone listening will know, it's so much easier to feel comfortable talking to a specialist nurse than it is to talking to a clinician. Just for starters, you don't have that nightmare feeling that you've got somewhere between 10 and 20 minutes to say everything, to ask every single question. And clinicians, not all, but many clinicians don't actually look at you. What they do is look at their screen because their screen is saying, this is where they were last time I saw them. And these are the things I want to ask about. And they occasionally look up to the left to look at you, and then they're back on the screen again to make sure that they've noted everything very carefully. Whereas an HIV nurse has the opportunity to spend time, which in my experience at least is quality time, with their patient and talk to them as a person, which is so, so very, very important. I could say things and do say things to nurses that I either don't get the time or the opportunity to say to clinicians. I feel that they're a little bit hampered by knowing too much in the sense they have done eight years training or whatever and they feel that 
they are the guardians of knowledge, if you like. Not just that they know things, but they're the guardians of it. And sometimes I feel that there is this sort of knowledge hierarchy. You can know this, clinician to nurse, because you're a nurse and you've got this amount of knowledge, but you, patient, you can't. Because while a little bit of knowledge goes a long way, it's also dangerous. It's dangerous because you don't know enough to understand. Whereas an HIV nurse will, in plain English, in plain language, communicate in terms of answering questions in simple language, which, as someone who specializes in communication, I feel very, very strongly about. Thank you, Joe. You've just briefly touched upon this idea of this hierarchy of knowledge and it was something that really struck a chord with me about how we either overtly or inadvertently maybe withhold knowledge or experience and I'm just wondering from your point of view how important is this within the clinical consultation to empower women to take well, to have more information about the care. What is our role as healthcare providers to try and help with this hierarchy of knowledge? Everybody should be involved in every treatment choice. Involved means understanding. It does not mean being a nodding dog. In other words, when you are told that your treatment will be changed, possibly because these days a generic is cheaper, what should accompany that is an explanation that this is in fact exactly the same. It's just that it is now available because it's off patent. And it's easy to explain that patent is simply like a brand. So this is like if you bought something in TK Maxx and you would get it cheap, rather than if you bought it in the posh fashion shop down the street. Now, everyone can understand that, and that is happening a lot now in terms of medication changes because of how it's purchased and the need to save money. But more fundamentally, it's understanding what medication does, why it does it, and listening to what is said by the person who's actually taking it? What are they experiencing? Allow them to feel free to talk about what they're experiencing. Don't give them a list of side effects they might have. There is a very dismissive way of saying, um, have you found you're experiencing any side effects? And the obvious answer to that is, no, I'm fine, doctor, thank you. Because there is this feeling, and doctors have it with doctors. I've talked to doctors about it. Doctors get it with doctors. Of you like, talk up to the doctor, doctor's parent, you are child. It's the classic thing is everyone says, you know, how are you today? Oh, I'm fine, doctor. Well, why are you in my surgery wasting my time then? Um, 
but it, it's an extrapolation from that. I have never forgotten, you will remember, when the undetectable equals untransmissible, unfortunately, an Americanism that doesn't flow off the tongue, but basically since when the research was published which shows that if you are taking treatment, then you will have no detectable trace of virus in your blood, then ipso facto, you will not be able to pass on the virus to anyone else. When that was published, it became evident that not every patient was hearing it, and they were not hearing it maybe immediately. That knowledge was being controlled. One of the most important pieces of information that must, and I say must, not should, must be shared with people living with HIV is that if they take the medication so that there is no detectable level of virus in their blood, they cannot pass it on to anyone else. Now, that is very, very freeing. There is no longer fear or guilt, which just endorses stigma, feeling bad about yourself. Mm -hmm. Now, when that research was published, it seemed logical that everyone, every mm -hmm. clinician, every nurse, everybody would share it with everybody else. And it was obvious that U equals U, as in undetectable equals untransmissible, did not exactly trip off the tongue as it was a phrase coined uh, in America. It's done an amazing job, don't get me wrong. But it had to be explained. And what you needed to do was to communicate that, take your medication you cannot pass HIV on to anyone else. I do communications for the British HIV Association, as you know. And the British HIV Association wanted to see how and when clinicians shared that information with their patients. So there was a survey. You probably remember it. This is going back whoa, three years at least now. The results of that survey, because I was helping with the analysis of it, mm -hmm. and we presented it um, World AIDS Day, in fact, at a World AIDS Day event, we, in this instance, being the British HIV Association. And what it revealed is that not everybody did share the information, and certainly not everybody shared it on diagnosis. There were some comments, the majority of people did, I don't want to give the wrong impression, but there were some comments that I found truly shocking, mm. such as, well, you can't tell them that, you don't know what they do, which sort of wrapped up how some doctors believe every patient must be treated which was so, so very wrong. Um, there were also the 
only telling them when you are comfortable that they're comfortable with a diagnosis, which to me was just counterintuitive. I think things have changed since then, because if you're told when you're diagnosed that, hey, this treatment, not only can you live a normal length of life, a normal lifespan, mm-hmm. but you cannot pass HIV on to anyone else. That is so freeing. It's so liberating. It is such a lifting thing. So telling someone when they're diagnosed helps to take away that awful, awful experience that people have when they're told that they're HIV positive. And that still is the case, that it's an awful experience now, today. It's not just that it was. That brings me on to another point, which is never assume knowledge. Never assume that people know things. The population out there, apart from the just over 100,000 people who live with HIV, do not know anything about HIV. They really do not. My friends, who I have tried valiantly to educate about HIV, when I meet someone I was at school with, which I do about once or twice every year, you know, I get the, oh, there's this thing you can take now that gets rid of it, isn't there? It's called, um, what is it? Begins with a P. It's, um, it's, um, prep, prep. Yes, that's what, yeah. Now that, that, that gets rid of it, doesn't it? So I explain carefully, whoops, no, no, no cure. No, 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 no. You take that to stop getting HIV because it prevents, pre is for prevent. It prevents HIV from getting a hold of somebody's system. They don't know that people, the vast majority of people, I mean, well over 90% of people living with HIV in this country who are on treatment simply cannot pass HIV on to anyone else. I know that because they sneak into the downstairs toilet when I've been and give it a quick spray just in case I may be in some way. And the word they would use is infectious, infecting them. But people don't know. But why would they know? It's If you look at the numbers, there's 67.5 million people in this country, of which just over 100,000 have HIV. I mean, a lot of people are not going to have ever come across it. And they will remember the emotion, the drama of things like it's a sin, but they won't remember the facts. And the facts of it's a sin are looking at the facts that were there in the early days before there was treatment. So if they look at that, as far as they're concerned, the facts are some people are put in isolation and then they die. 
you know um because that's what it shows You've mentioned there are lots of issues that you know people aren't informed about HIV. There's a lot of misinformation out there. There is a lot of you know the the world's a big place, and actually lots of people don't really know the facts about HIV. So I'm just wondering, from your perspective, how does that translate to women's experiences of living with HIV, and how does that kind of transfer into the consultation rooms? I'm wondering what problems. In your experience, do you believe women living with HIV experience when accessing care? I think for women, it is a different situation. It's a cliche, but HIV in this country is a gay, white man's disease, in as much as that is where the highest incidence is. And people are so shocked when I tell them that there are more women than there are men who have HIV globally, they really are shocked because it's telling them that actually there are other women like me who actually have HIV because it's not seen as being anything to do with women. And then it raises the questions. The questions are, well, how did you get it? Yeah, you can see it on the tip of the tongue of someone. They so want to ask you, They know they probably shouldn't, but they really, really want to know. And if they're a a sort of um, bossy, businessy, counsellor type of woman, they will ask you. I remember a local counsellor saying to me, because I had made the mistake in a public event of just sharing the fact that I myself had HIV. The event wasn't about HIV, it was about healthcare generally. And she had seemed to have a fair amount of brain. But when I said that, you know, actually I said, you know, I I have HIV. I live with HIV myself. You, you have. Yes, yes, I have. Yeah. <sighs> I'd never have thought it would affect someone like you. Did you have a blood transfusion of the wrong group when you had your daughter? Um, This brings out the worst in me, hearing someone say that. So my reply was, what is it about me? Do I just look like I never have sex? (laughs) 97% of people with HIV get it through sex, you know? Um, she, She didn't talk to me for that much longer after that. but. People should know, and it should be shared. If you're a woman, then there are those bad things. Now, do you look like the sort that would use drugs? Maybe not, okay? Do you look like the sort that would sleep around a lot? Probably not. Difficult to tell at your age, but probably not. So how else do you get it? through a blood transfusion when you have your daughter. Yeah, that that is the obvious conclusion. But there is this perception that you must, to use the term my mother would have used, must be a bit of a slapper if you have HIV. You must have put it about a bit. You Mm -hmm. must be that sort. As soon as you hear someone saying that sort, 
you know that they have preconceptions which possibly should be updated and this possibly isn't going to be enough time to be able to do the updating. Mm -hmm. There is what is referred to as intersectionality if you're a woman. In other words, a lot of different factors come into play. If you're a brown girl, as one might say, then you're going to face a lot worse, maybe, than I would face because some, particularly African communities, really, really go big time on the judgment call on what a woman is and how she behaves if she has HIV. That is a difficult thing to handle. It's difficult enough to handle the fact that you have HIV without having to handle a cultural judgment which is put upon you. And in general terms, women don't know much about it. Generally do not. I mean, and 80% of women with HIV in this country are people from a BAME background. Hence my reference to brown girls, which is a reference that friends of mine would use who are brown girls. So I, I really am um, out on a limb there, if you think about it, because I'm in the tiny little percentage. I'm not representative at all of what the picture is here or indeed elsewhere either. Uh, in fact, I think it's a really good thing because it means I can challenge people because of my communications background. I'm in this position because I have a job to do, you know. I've got a job to do. Something that I think we're both really passionate about, Joe, is empowering people and thinking about how we start these conversations. Um, so how can we proactively encourage anybody listening, maybe a healthcare professional who wants to have better conversations in their consultation, or any women listening, or any people listening who just want better conversations in their clinical consultation? Is there any suggestions that you may suggest about how we can improve our consultations? If you don't mind, I'm going to focus particularly on what nurses can do. Mm -hmm. As a nurse, you have the opportunity to have a person-to-person -person conversation because you spend time. You have the luxury of spending an amount of time. I know you're going to say, yeah, you're still pressured to get everything done, but you spend time with a patient because you have to do blood tests. You have all of those things that you can say about why the blood tests are being done. And you can start a conversation by saying, do you know why we do these tests? Never assume knowledge. Do you know why we're doing this? Let me just give you an example. Now, we look at how your kidneys are working because some medications affect how some people's kidneys work. But I'm really happy to tell you, looking at your notes, that you're not one of them. And that's the beginning of a conversation. And then you can talk, perhaps, about liver function. Very few people 
will know that ALT has anything to do with anything except a key on your computer that you press <laughs> in bad moments, you know. Um, so, so take the opportunity. The, the reason to explain why tests are being done as well is it's so reassuring. It means a person knows that they're being monitored and say, you're really lucky. Most people in the population have no idea what their blood pressure is. They have no idea how their organs are functioning. Now, you do because we test them. So we look at them. So you will always have a watchful eye on what's happening to you. And that does more than just inform about the tests. It gives confidence. And then that confidence enables people to ask you about things they want to ask about. Also, it's really important to talk about and normalize things that many, many people suffer from but will not talk about. Because even with a nurse, there is the same thing as there is with a doctor of wanting to please, this desire to please a healthcare professional by not complaining, you know. I know so many women who have a not complaining attitude to life anyway, because life has taught them to be like that. So that phrase, well, I can't complain, is in fact an attitude of mind. A lot of people suffer from sleep disturbance or insomnia. But because we, we the patients, know that lots of people we know suffer from that, we think we can't complain. We don't realise there could be alternatives in terms of the medication we take that would help that would stop us from being in that position. And that, if it's really bad, we could look at things that could help us to sleep better, for example. And please, this is a pretty please to everyone. Don't start talking about blue screens, breathing deeply, avoiding blue screens before you go to bed, because that really makes you want to scream if you all of those things, and you still sleep very badly. So that's one thing people don't mention, and it would be good to discuss it with an open tone and an open voice. The other is even less probably mentioned, which is digestive disturbance, or those people listening would recognize the term urgency. Now, if are someone living with HIV urgency <laughs> means for goodness sake make sure that you go at least three times before you leave the house if you're getting onto a train because you could find yourself in a very very disgusting position. I was saying this to some guys at an HIV conference recently mm -hmm. um, I was just asking them about it and one of them flew at me with a pink face and said, you've got no idea what it's like. You've got no idea what it's like. I have to carry a spare pair of pants with me, you know. And I said, actually, I do. It happens to me too. And it's really hard to say to someone, you know, 
that um, to use a possibly acceptable terms, you know, I fill my pants. Yeah, that happened to me. I do my best to avoid it happening. Mm-hmm. But if it's going to go, it's going to go. And there is nothing I can do. And again, it does mean that perhaps mm-hmm. other medications, perhaps something mm-hmm. that to take as a temporary measure if you're going on a journey could help. So I think it's really important that, Joe, what you've just mentioned, you know, don't assume people have knowledge. And also it's good to build on that knowledge, starting with a, you know, an in about, do you know why you're having these tests, explaining them, but also giving that space and building that trust to have these conversations about sleep with an open mind and not rushing in to fix things. Because I think sometimes as healthcare professionals, we try to, to find the solution rather than working with somebody to see what have you done before. You know, somebody really struggles with sleep, yeah, telling me not to look at a blue screen before. I think, well, do you know, there's other things that I've done. That's not not the solution. And again, those embarrassing conversations that we might not want to bring up are really important to have as well and just giving that space for that to happen. Yeah, I mean, I I remember um, saying that that was a problem, not to my HIV nurse, but to in fact, one of your colleagues uh, when doing something else. Um, and she said, oh, God, Joe, you know, so that happened to me in my friend's car. Oh, it was awful, awful. But just the relief of being able to talk about it. Yeah, it's a huge, huge relief because, you know, you have already so many things that prompt shame, shame, prompt stigma, etc. Mm-hmm. And it's good to get over things like that. But there are other Issues like weight, um, why does no one believe my meds make me put on weight? That's said so very, very often. And at the recent uh, conference, it was one of the things that came out from the advanced study, in fact, that there is definitely a link with TAF mm-hmm. as opposed to TDF, with dolotography and TAF, to greater weight gain. Because people feel they're blamed and they're not believed. It is awful to not feel that you're being believed, that what you say is not being taken seriously. And on the knowledge, don't assume knowledge, a lot of people have said to me, what does frailty actually mean? Because the term has crept into usage without an understanding of what is actually being measured. What equals frailty? And there's a bit of a negative with the word frailty. It's like, yeah, go on, put another nail in my coffin, I'm getting old. All right, all right, all right, okay, I'll accept it. I'm getting old, you know. And a lot of women feel that they don't get listened to or get the attention that gay men get. You know, in women's groups, I've heard it said, yeah, I would get so much more attention if I was a gay man. Um, And I think there could be an amount of truth in it. I know you would say there isn't, but I think there is an amount. I think partly also because gay men are a bit better sometimes than we are at shouting their corner. And, And those questions that assume that you are irresponsible, like, 
Why was I asked if my partner knew about my HIV status? You know, because there is an implicit belief in that that you could pass on HIV to your partner. But why would you be asked that if you're undetectable? Do you see? There is this sort of judgment of being irresponsible, let alone the, I haven't seen my consultant for two years now, which does happen, I'm afraid. I think it links back to what you were saying before about that kind of intersectionality, that those different issues affecting people when they come through into the clinic room. And I guess for healthcare professionals listening and for people listening, anybody listening really, it's just having that, bearing that in mind that actually the person in front of you, there's a whole lot of reasons and why they may not choose to open up and tell you their full story, but being in a place where you're ready to listen and, and you know, support people to be able to tell their story as well. The hardest thing to say is what is worrying you the most. The most important thing to say is what is worrying you the most. And that's where an HIV nurse can really come in. That's a really good point to finish on. I, I like that mode of question, what's worrying you the most? And again, that we know we've talked, Angelina um, talks about that, thinking about actually what's important to that person at that time. So thank you for that great reminder of, of kind of really prioritising that, that, that need within the cl clinical consultation. So now is part of the show where I get to know you a little bit better. So I was just wondering if you could share for our listeners something that you do as part of your self-care. I eat things I like. I do things I enjoy. I listen to music that I can dance to, preferably without that many people watching these days, although I used to be far more obvious uh, in such things. I walk in the country, I look at bees on flowers, I look at birds on my bird table. These are all things that give me joy. If I walk in the country, I'm lucky to live fairly near to two lakes. There's just so many things to look at, so many things to see. And if you're having a day when you feel a bit bleh, then walking and looking just takes you out of it. Definitely. Just getting out into nature and just observing all the wonders that it offers. Sounds mm. sounds a wonderful idea, Joe. I'm just wondering, can you share with us a book that you've been reading recently? As it happens, I've just finished reading one of the most powerful books I have ever read in my life. It's called A Working Class Family Ages Badly. It's written by a friend of mine, Juno Roche, and the pronoun she uses is they. So I should be saying the pronoun they use is they. It is very deep. It is very honest. 
the phrase painfully honest could really be used with the book. I feel I have learned so very much about how it is, how it actually is to be someone who suffers from addiction, who has lived with addiction over a period of years. She's clean now, as she would tell you, but she went through 10 years or thereabouts a very heavy use and therefore doing the things that you hear people do in order to continue to buy their drugs, which basically means selling sex. It means, if it's easy enough to do, a sort of low-level stealing, low-level criminality. It means really thinking about yourself. You are the greatest priority because you can't think any other way. You are the only thing that matters to you. It's very raw, her book, very raw. And I think it is extraordinary that she has come through all of that, that she decided to take herself out of it and become the author that they have become today. Juno, I'm sorry I called you she and said if they, if you hear this, I apologize. It is a really extraordinary insight. She put it that the use of heroin gives a stillness. Suddenly, all of the things raging around your head become still and quiet. And that is what makes it initially attractive and then within a short time essential to be able to survive. Having read the book, I feel I am so, so lucky because Juno was diagnosed with HIV when she was just starting at university. So she had all of that to cope with, as well as the adjustment that she was making from a childhood which was quite violent and difficult. I'm really lucky. I didn't have those things. I didn't have them at all. Uh, and if I were wearing a hat, I would take it off right now. I would take every hat I've ever worn off to Juno. That book really is, it's a trite phrase, but it's a must read. A working class family ages badly. Gosh. Joe, I'm just, I can't wait to drop that in the HID Matters book club for our listeners. But I'm, yeah, it sounds like a really powerful story. So thank you so much for sharing that with us. Finally, if time, money, resources were not an issue, what would you like to change or see done differently? In the old days or the early days of HIV, even when I was first diagnosed, which was 2008, so that's not early days by any means, 
there were a lot of support centers where you could go and have a cup of coffee, where you could have a cake, where you could meet other people who also had HIV. You could socialize with your tribe in a very informal way. And that socializing was so uplifting. There are fewer and fewer HIV peer support, to coin the phrase, organizations left. And those that there are, are rightly focused on helping the people who have the greatest need. So maybe that's financial need, maybe that's mental health issue need or whatever. Just as PrEP is something that prevents people getting HIV, those drop-in places, those cafes, those sort of little restaurants, places like Lighthouse, they were places that prevent the mental health issues, that prevent stigma from getting you down, that enable people to find out more about their medication, about themselves, about how this virus is going to progress. But they don't exist now. As I've said when talking about the role of an HIV nurse, you have time to share more information, to share more knowledge. When I was diagnosed, I think I got more information from people at various organizations over a meal than I did from anywhere else at all. And it was so reassuring. So, money, that's what I would do. I wouldn't start an organization to provide the sort of things that in a way should come from social services anyhow. What I would do is start an organization where people who are living with HIV can just hang out. That sounds amazing, Joanne. I remember yeah, in the early days of my career going to um, places like that where I could meet up with people living with HIV, have a cup of coffee, a piece of cake and we we talk about loads of different things that the real issues like you know what you said about what's worrying you most today that was where yeah. we was kind of kind of phrase breaking bread together that's when the real issues came out yeah. um but yeah that sounds like a great idea to have some more of those community centers cafes. Maybe maybe when I win the lottery, I suppose buying a ticket would be a good start, but when I win the lottery, then maybe breaking bread, as you said, is such a good idea. I'll just start a restaurant. Sounds perfect. Yeah. I will be there. I'll be there. I'll start putting on the lottery now. And between us, maybe we could... One of us will win. <laughs> one of us will win. We'll cre- I'll send it out there and we can create that space <laughs> together. We should. Well, thank you so much, Joe. As always, it's been an absolute pleasure sharing this time and space with you today. And thank you for sharing your wonderful insights for our listeners today. I hope some of it helps. Thank you so much. Take care and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you to today's guest and to you for listening to this episode of HIV Matters. I don't know if you're anything like me and are busy writing down the lovely book suggestions made in our show. That's why HIV Matters have teamed up with bookshop.org to bring all these fantastic books to you in one unique place. 
To find out more about this and how to access the bookstore, please check out today's show descriptions. Today's edition of HIV Matters has been brought to you via an unrestricted educational grant from Vive Healthcare and Gilead Sciences. Gilead and Vive have had no input into guests or topics. HIV Matters is the official podcast of the National HIV Nurses Association. For more information about the National HIV Nurses Association, head over to www.nivna.org. Thanks again for listening to our show. We hope to see you next time and together we can make a difference.